is an accused Well, he denies it. Look, he denies it. He doesn't buy the authenticity of these accusations. What the hell? I, I don't know why the president, uh, you know, is always punching down. We don't need a liberal person in there, a Democrat. He totally denies it. He says it didn't happen. And, you know, you have to listen to him also. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who refers to himself as your favorite president, but definitely is not, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And all eyes are on Alabama this week, where the revelations about the double defrock Judge Roy Moore have given the term mall rat a whole new meaning. Moore's unwillingness to exit the Senate race after a mountain of evidence about his sexually assaulting teenagers as young as 14 has divided not only his state's Republicans, but the Trump family. About more, Ivanka Trump said last week, there's a special place in hell for people who prey on children. Ivanka added that she had no reason to doubt the victim's accounts. And we don't. But her dad was reportedly furious about that. He points out that Moore says it didn't happen. You have to listen to him also, the president says. The people around the president keep trying different strategies to edge him away from Moore. And Trump keeps dashing back to Moore's corner, which is right up the escalator between the perfume connection and American Eagle. Congressional Republicans who don't want Moore mated with them in Democratic campaign ads are aghast. They know that seating the jailbait judge could doom their prospects for continued control of both houses in 2018. And all this creates a funny dilemma for Trump's opponents. Which Republicans do we want to win this fight? The Bannon wing, which aims to blow up the Republican Party? Or the McConnell wing, which wants to get back to the normal business of right-wing governing? If I'm being honest, I'll admit that I'm kind of rooting for Chester Molester. It's not up to us to interrupt the GOP in the process of committing suicide. And maybe, just maybe, seating more will finally be the moment the Republican Party takes a hard look in the mirror, hits bottom, and goes into treatment for Trumpism. On today's show, Vladimir Putin's enemy number one and the creator of the Magnitsky Act. Virginia Heffernan and I will be back to speak to William Browder right after we do the tweets. Crooked Hillary Clinton is the worst and biggest loser of all time. She just can't stop, which is good for the Republican Party. Hillary, get on with your life and give it another try in three years. Time magazine called to say that I was probably going to be named Man Person of the Year, like last year, but I would have to agree to an interview and a major photo shoot. I said, probably is no good, and took a pass. Thanks anyway. We should have a contest as to which of the networks, plus CNN and not including Fox, is the most dishonest, corrupt, and or distorted in its political coverage of your favorite president, me. They are all bad, winner to receive the fake news trophy. The last thing. We need in Alabama and the U.S. Senate is a Schumer-Pelosi puppet 
who is weak on crimes, weak on the border, bad for our military and our great vets, bad for our Second Amendment, and wants to raise taxes to the sky. Jones would be a disaster. I'm pleased to welcome back to the program William Browder. He's the author of the amazing book Red Notice and the head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign. I have reinforcements today. I've invited Virginia Heffernan to join me. She's a fan of Bill Browder. (laughs) All I can say about her is, is, is Bill, Virginia went as... Natalia Veselnitskaya for Halloween. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> yes, how, into it. Yes, That's how into it she is. <laughs> and, wow. And what, what did you wear? Did, did you have uh, furs and diamonds? I talked a lot about not being an officer of the Russian government <laughs> and how I had no connections to the Kremlin. I'm, I'm sure you must have then been dressed up as some obsessed, angry person with me because that's, that's her, that's her <laughs> yes, other thing. I, ra- I raged about you. I also ran into a Paul Manafort. He was in prison stripes, which I thought was a little on the nose. But we did greet each other because <laughs> it's been a while since we saw each other. Perfect. Um, this is the kind of Halloween costumes people have in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have them all over the country, and that is a good thing to bring up with Bill Browder. You are an unlikely celebrity of our time, <laughs> um, but you are also doing real work advocating for and, and explaining the importance of the Magnitsky Act around the world. Give us the state of that Magnitsky Act right now, and our Trumpcast listeners barely need a refresher in it, but maybe you can give us a line yeah. about what it is. So so just just to remind everybody that um, uh, Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. Uh, he uncovered a massive corruption scheme in Russia. He exposed it. He was then arrested by the people involved, put in, j- in jail, tortured for 358 days, and killed at the age of 37 eight years ago in a Moscow prison. And it's been my life's mission since his murder on November 16, 2009, to get justice for him. And when it became clear that the Russians were absolutely not interested, when Putin was absolutely not interested in getting justice for him, I said, we need to get justice in the West then. And um, I began this process of trying to find justice. And we came up with this idea, which is that uh, Sergei was uh, killed for uncovering a massive $230 million government corruption scam. And they don't keep that money in, in Russia. They keep it in the West. And so we came up with this idea of freezing their assets and banning their visas in the West. And the campaign started pretty soon after he was killed. And, and the first country that did it was the United States of America. In, in December of 2012, um, President Obama signed the Magnitsky Act into law. It fr- freezes the assets and bans the visas of these people who killed Magnitsky and the people who do similar types of things. Bill, you've now passed versions that helped to have passed versions of the Magnitsky Act in Canada, in the UK, I think in Estonia. What's your strategy now? Are you just going country by country and trying to create more places that can't be safe havens for these Russian criminals? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, I don't have a very big organization. We have about 10 people working uh, full-time on this, and so it's not as if I have unlimited resources to do this. And so uh, it's, I, I kind of view it as, as guerrilla warfare, and we look for where the opportunities, where we can get the lowest effort, highest impact situations. And so we look for countries where, where that are ripe to do this. So we have five countries so far. And in fact, today, the president of Lithuania signed the Magnitsky Act into law in Lithuania. So that's our fifth country. Out of nowhere, apparently, the Gibraltar government has introduced a Magnitsky Act without any intervention from me whatsoever. I, um, I expect because the government introduced it, it will probably pass. And so 
Gibraltar be our sixth country, but it got me thinking that um, while I'm, of course, I'm, I'm one of my biggest target is France. All these guys have villas in Capferrat yeah. and Saint-Tropez and all these places. Um, that's where they would really be angry. That's also where they have the biggest defenses set up. I, I'm sure that there's a lot of politicians in France who are under the influence of Russia, either mm-hmm. directly or indirectly. But why not go after all the British overseas territories? I mean, if, if Gibraltar right. did it without even asking, why not the British Virgin Islands or Cayman Islands, et cetera? And, the, you know, the Cayman, you're talking about it, the travel ban part being useful with France, but you're talking about the, the money part being useful with Cayman Islands. I mean, exactly. I mean, that, that's, where, that's where all, not all, but, but a lot of um, offshore companies are located in the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands mm-hmm. and Bermuda, et cetera. So if you want to hit the Russians where they live, though— these tax havens and money laundering places in the Caribbean are great, but Cyprus, which is part of Europe, is the banking, the offshore banking place where these Russian oligarchs keep a lot of their money, right? Can you do anything in Cyprus? Well, no, Cyprus will be the last country on earth that, that will, <laughs> will do a Magnitsky Act. And the reason is because, in my opinion, um, Cyprus has effectively become a colony of Russia in the EU. And I and I, I don't say that that casually. I say that with with experience because um, as one of the things that's happened as a result of the Magnitsky Act being uh, <clears throat> imposed is that Putin has gotten really angry with me, personally angry with me, yes. and and uh, he's coming after me in all different ways. And since I'm not in Russia, he's got to come after me in the West. And and uh, he's used Interpol. The, there's been five different attempts that Putin has made to Interpol to try to have me arrested, which of course Interpol has rejected. Um, they've applied for extradition on numerous occasions from Britain, and Britain has told them on, in no uncertain terms to go away. And various other countries, the same thing. But the one country which is cooperating with Russia on the persecution of me mm. is Cyprus. Cyprus has got a full scale. Their, their police are working with the Russian police. They're raiding the offices of my uh, of the law firm that we used in Cyprus. And so Cyprus is is a uh, is a quite extraordinary place as far as, uh, as as far as this all goes. And and you might ask, well, why why is Cyprus behaving this way? And the answer, is, I think you kind of answered asked asked <laughs> the question in your answer or answered the question in your, it, it, which is that um, a big portion of the Cyprus economy comes directly from Russian cash, hmm. and and therefore they don't want to kill the golden goose. Well, um, I guess that brings me to this question about another autocracy, a, a monarchy nominally. This is Saudi Arabia. As the exploration on Trumpcast has expanded beyond the connection of Trump to Russia, we've started to think about his connections to other autocrats, including Duterte, and possibly in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, this connection to, at least in action, to Mohammed bin Salman. I think I asked you on Twitter if you thought that MBS, as they call him, his purge in Saudi seemed at all, reminded you at all of Putin's 2003 attack on the oligarchs, that MBS is trying to make a an example of Alouid bin Talal, who I think is a billionaire, very much the way Khodorovsky was in uh, in Russia before Putin caged him, literally caged him to make, like putting him in the stockades to make him an example for other pretenders to Putin's fortune or other ambitious billionaires. Does, do you see, I don't know, do you see something <clears throat> alive I, in the way these autocrats act? So, so P- Putin was fighting with all the oligarchs. Yeah. Putin was fighting with the oligarchs because they had power and he wanted to have all the power. And so what does he do? He finds the richest oligarch in the country. He grabs him off his private jet, files criminal charges against him, puts him in a, in a courtroom or puts him on trial in a courtroom. And in Russia, as you, as you said, 
But there's, there's no presumption of innocence. There's a 99.7% conviction rate in Russian courts. And so as a result, they don't even bother. There's no, they don't bother to – so they, they just put you in a cage right away. And so, they, so in that courtroom in 2004, Putin allowed the television cameras to come in and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. Now, imagine that you're, you're one of these um, other oligarchs and, and these other oligarchs um, were in Saint-Tropez and other places sitting on their yachts. They go out to the living room and flick on uh, CNN and they, they see this guy far better than them, far smarter, far more powerful sitting in a cage. And the reaction, the natural reaction was, I don't want to sit in that cage. And they all went back to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to not sit in the cage? And he said, 50%. So that was the Hordakovsky story. And so- 50% meaning half their fortunes. Yeah. Straight into- His pocket. Not the government's pocket, but his pocket. Straight Putin. into the $200 billion, you've said, fortune. That's more than well, Jeff Bezos. Well, that, that's how he got his $200 billion oh, fortune. Oh, I see. I see. Skimming off 50% off everyone. Yeah, that's not I, skimming, right? That's different than skimming. No, he, it's like he, half he, and half, cream and milk. It's like splitting the check <laughs> after it's paid. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. But so, so, yes. so, so, so anyway, so, so that, that was the story of Russia. It's, it's not debated. It's, it's pretty much a, a matter of fact. And, yeah. and I've gotten to know Hordakovsky since he's come out of jail and-, and uh, it's all pretty well, pretty well established. So a few weeks ago, I was reading this story about Saudi Arabia, and I, 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 I profess no expertise on Saudi Arabia whatsoever, other than having a little expertise in, in dictators and oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and in Saudi Arabia, there was this major headline that, that this, um, this Saudi prince, the one who owns pieces of Twitter and Citibank and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, that he had been arrested and a bunch of other uh, Saudi Princes have been arrested, and it just brought back, right back to 2004, the memory of what happened with Hordakovsky. And and uh, I don't know whether he's what his play is with these guys. But if you want to, if you're if you're a um, a leader of a um, non rule of law country, and you want to change the balance of power, then you want to change the balance of power of people who are very rich. Go and arrest the richest ones, mm-hmm. and then put it put them all, and then allow everybody else to see the richest guy. Sitting in jail. I mean, now, yeah. interestingly about Saudi Arabia, they, they don't do the cages there. They, they, they put them all in the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> yes, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. But you may st- not leave your suite. <laughs> but they're still somehow on, it seems, on display there. It, it, you know, this, and I don't know if this is um, was similar in, in uh, Russia when you were there, but the... That purge, the purge in Saudi Arabia, keeps being referred to even in in the New York Times and other places as a crackdown on corruption. Is there any way that when you were changing your mind about Putin, when you were not sure around the time of of Khodorovsky's imprisonment, did it initially seem to you because it's hard to get your it's hard to get sentimental about the arrest of billionaires. Yeah. And initially you might see it as a crackdown on corruption. I right? I, I, I did. So so when Hordakovsky so um a lot of people didn't like the arrest of Hordakovsky, but but yeah. I had been fighting with him. He was one of the guys who was stealing uh, you know doing all this terrible stuff back in the day and I was fighting with him and so and I was really hating all the oligarchs because they had created this situation in Russia of 40 or 22 guys stole 40% of the country and everyone else lived in poverty. And so when Hordakovsky was arrested, I said, "Yay." Um, one down, twenty-one to go. Yeah, and I, I, I was, I was um, publicly on the record. And a lot of people criticize me now about this, but uh, I was on the record saying, uh, I think it's a great thing that Hordakovsky was arrested. Now, ah. n- now let's get, let's go for another one. And then I was extremely and deeply disappointed when Roman Abramovich, Roman Abramovich is the guy who owns the Chelsea football team or the soccer team here yeah. for, for all Americans, um, and he had an oil company, and and instead of st- 
taking his oil company like they did Hordakovsky's, they paid him $13 billion and made him the governor of the Chukotka region. Hmm. And I thought, wait a second, how is that right? If one guy gets arrested and have his oil company stripped away, another guy gets paid $13 billion and is made a governor, yeah. that, that there's something something bent here. And that's that's when I started to think that Putin wasn't doing a crackdown on corruption. So I, I've got no insight into what they're doing in Saudi Arabia, but but I would I would urge everybody to pay close attention to what happens next to see whether it's a, a real corruption crackdown or not. I agree. Um, Bill, people who are following the news over Thanksgiving weekend saw attacks on CNN from Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Once again, not obviously coordinated, but strangely in sync. Mm -hmm. Trump was tweeting again about fake news and particularly that CNN made America look bad to the rest of the world. And Putin was getting this law passed that is going to allow him to require foreign organizations, news organizations, including CNN, to register. And everyone thinks he's about to act against them, partly in claimed retaliation for the Justice Department here requiring RT, the Russian state propaganda network that functions as a, as a kind of news organization here, to register as foreign agent. What's going on here? First of all, what's going on with the RT, CNN, Putin tit for tat? And second of all, should we read anything into this seeming synchronicity between Trump and Putin? Well, let's let's start with RT. Yeah. So what does RT do? RT is a propaganda arm of the Russian government. And there's also another one called Sputnik. And they operate in tandem. And these are not news organizations. They're Russian government propaganda organizations that – whose job it is either to spread Russian propaganda or to attack the West. Those are the two goals of these But done in a subtle enough way that that m much of it appears to be a kind of news and often fools people, as it did during the election campaign when RT stories were being shared as if they were CNN stories. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, in the words of Donald Trump, fake news. This is the real thing. Yeah. It's the real thing, fake news. And so, so these organizations have been operating here unimpeded. And America is is slow to anger, but when it does, it, it generally does the right thing. And and everybody said, well, wait a second, why are these guys allowed to to these are this is an arm of the Russian government. Mm -hmm. When other Russian government arms go around trying to change U.S. policy, they have to do something called the Foreign Agent Registration Act. They have to register. They have mm -hmm. to register as foreign agent of a foreign government. These are clearly this is an organization that's an agent of the foreign government, and so. Putin got 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 very angry that RT had to register, and so now he's going after CNN and NBC and everyone else who's registered in Moscow and saying, "Well, you guys have to register as foreign agents in Russia." And the difference is that that um, CNN and NBC are not agents of the U.S. government; these are, are private news organizations that that generate private news. And I'm not sure what it means for them to be registering as foreign agents in Russia. That's that's that Putin does tit for tat reflexively. But what I, what I can say, and, and I can say this quite confidently, is that um, Russia is is effectively – Putin is effectively putting down the Iron Curtain. And whatever, whatever mm -hmm. opportunities there are to report news and distribute news in Russia will become more and more limited as time goes on because Putin can't afford for the truth to come out because as, as things get tougher and tougher for him economically over there, um, he's got to basically keep the narrative that he's somehow looking after the Russians' interests. There is still – Opposition in Russia, and there's still opposition media. It tends not to be television, but they're they're independent magazines, and there are people can still 
write things, taking whatever risks they take. And there was an interesting piece that that Virginia sent me from The Times pointing out that a lot of the sort of opposition-minded people in Russia – don't love our Russia story about Trump. They think it's a it's a distraction. They think it's conspiratorial. They're they're skeptical, as I think you have been at, at, at times, Bill, about this idea that there was a, a kind of Russia. That, well, that Trump was engaged in the Russian conspiracy to affect the outcome of the election. Well, I mean, yes, as I understand it from the article, um, and this is uh, from a couple of days ago. It's not seen from their point of view, from the opposition's point of view. It's not the Trump collusion that worries them. It's the suggestion that Putin, who they see as an old KGB washed out, or they'd like to see as a washed up person running a running an empire who's last who's that's in its last days. They don't like this exaggeration of him to some John le Carre dark overlord who can control everything and now has owned the United States also. I think that they believe hurts their opposition work and also it's just not true. Well, I mean, they're, they're absolutely right that Putin is not some kind of John le Carre hero, James Bond guy. He, Putin, I mean, you know, for every hundred projects he initiates, one works. And it just so happened that one of the most spectacular projects that he initiated did work, which was his interference in our domestic political process. But um, but Putin is not, um, you know, he's clumsy. He's got bad people working for him. They make huge mistakes. They allocate huge resources that fail at every different step of the way. The other thing the Russians don't like about about this whole story is they're, they're the masters of conspiracy. We're, we're, total ama- <laughs> we're total amateurs here. We are total amateurs here. They, everything is a conspiracy over there. And they look at us and just like, this is kindergarten stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, I, I think on, um, in an interview with, uh, in an interview that showed up in this article about Russian response to our conspiracy mongering, I don't think the Russians believe for a minute that Trump could really be elected. Uh, they were convinced that U.S. elites would ensure that one of their own would win. They thought they had a chance to do a bit of mischief, but they were amazed, even aghast, at what happened. Uh, this is an intelligent expert in in Prague named Galiati. Do you think that's true, that this was a bit of mischief and that, I don't know, that that had unintended consequences? This, by this, I mean the meddling in the election. Well, I think that, that, that I wouldn't call it mischief at all. I mean, it, it's it's very serious. I, mean, I, I, I know the Russians operations because I'm a, I'm a target of the Russians' operations. Yeah. And the way that they do their operations is is that they have a lot of them. And, and what you have to understand about, about Putin in Russia is that he has no oversight. There is no press monitoring him. There's no judges to judge him. There's no parliament to have oversight over his government. And so he can do anything he wants. And so what he does is he says, let's just make a list of every po- – a wish list of all the things we want to have happen in the world mm-hmm. and let's allocate – money towards them yeah, and see what happens. And this this particular thing wasn't mischief. It was one of their many hundreds and hundreds of objectives. It worked and they allocated more money to it and it was working and, and it worked really well. So they allocated more money to it. That leads me to the question we have to ask on Trumpcast, which is, what do you think happened? I know you don't talk that much about Donald Trump, the U.S. president, <clears throat> but you must have some guesses about how y- you say they allocated some money to it. So yeah, when, so, so what did they allocate money to? They allocated money to hackers. Yeah. We know for sure. Mm-hmm. And they hacked. Mm-hmm. Hackers they, going to hack. They hacked the DNC and they hacked the RNC. Yep. They released the DNC. They held the RNC back. They worked closely with Julian Assange to distribute the stuff they hacked from the DNC. And at the same time, they worked very closely with um, various different distributors of fake information. That's Mm -hmm. what we know. That's what I know. Yeah. I don't know anything else. Everything else is just pure speculation. And everybody spends a lot of time speculating. And we don't need to speculate. 
we, we, we have um, an incredibly talented guy mm-hmm. named Robert Mueller. Yes. Who is conducting a very thorough investigation with 20 guys equally talented than him, maybe five to 10 years his junior, who are going through with all tools that I don't have and you don't have and nobody has of eavesdropping, phone, phone tapping, subpoena operations where they're getting information a thousand times deeper than all of us. You don't think we can read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy <laughs> and sit in our chairs and figure it out? Probably well, it, not. It's, it's going to be figured out. Either there yes. was collusion or there wasn't, or there wasn't, or there wasn't collusion. And, and we can all be armchair collusion experts <laughs> or we can just wait until the investigation is done. And, yeah. I, and, and the, the, the process is it's not as if the process hasn't started. If there are people, yeah. if there are many people that are worried about this collusion mm-hmm. and it's being investigated. Bill, last time we had you on the show, I asked you about the so-called dossier, and you were pretty skeptical of it in part because it was commissioned by a company called Fusion GPS, um, co-run by a former journalist called Glenn Simpson, who, among his other assignments, had been paid to discredit you. And that led to a little back and forth with Glenn Simpson, who wrote us a threatening letter, and I invited him to come on the show, which he declined to do to explain why he hadn't done that or to defend his position. But See, anyway— we, we don't have subpoena power. <laughs> All we can do is we, invite people on to and, Trump And, and that, that invitation stands. I, I would love to have Glenn on to talk about it. But have, what, have the things that have happened since—we have learned more— some things that were in the dossier have been confirmed. Um, we may know a little more about Glenn Simpson's role in all of this. Bring, bring us up today as, as far as you're concerned. Okay. So first of all, Glenn Simpson was hired by Natalia Veselnitskaya. And Natalia Veselnitskaya was an agent of Vladimir Putin. Right. And I just want to say, just because to, to forestall any additional legal threats, he claims he was hired by this law firm. We'll, we'll get, we'll get, to, the, we'll okay. get to the law firm. So, yeah. so let, let's just put let, – let, to, to avoid any legal yeah. consequences for you. Natalia Veselnitskaya, who is an agent of the Russian government, paid a law firm called Baker Hostetler, who paid, and we just learned this um, uh, last week, paid Glenn Simpson $523,000 to smear me, to smear Sergei Magnitsky, and to basically work on a Russian government cover-up of the murder of Sergei Magnitsky, to say that Sergei Magnitsky wasn't murdered, he died of natural causes. That was Glenn Simpson's project. And so he was basically paid to lie to journalists and others about the what happened to, to Sergei Magnitsky. So he's a what I would call a paid liar. Which in Washington they call public relations or lobbying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he's gotten really mad because he got caught. And I filed a, I, I filed a criminal complaint with the Department of Justice because he did not register as a foreign agent. Mm-hmm. And, he was re- and he was a foreign agent. He, re- he, he, he represented indirectly the Russian government in this project and didn't register. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's what Paul Manafort, by the way, was arrested for. Mm-hmm. So the other thing which came out last week from, from court documents, which were unsealed, is that Glenn Simpson, according to these court documents, pays journalists money. He claims he pays the journalists to do research for him. Let's see. Let's find out the names of the journalists and let's find out if they've written anything against me or for him or, or whatever because – if he's paying journalists to write stories, that's pretty scandalous. What kinds of journalists? I, m- I missed the reference to, to what you're talking about. I mean, these are journalists who work for RT or these are people he's hiring at his firm? No, I, I, sus- I mean, surely I, I, no. no. We, we, we don't know. We don't know the names. We don't know who, how, much, how much money they got. All we know is that three journalists have been paid. And, and that's going to be an interesting question to be answered. So you, you've got the situation where let's come back to the, to the Trump dossier. So I don't know whether it's true or not. I do know that the, the that Christopher Steele, who's a who's a highly regarded uh, former MI6 agent, is really uh, above reproach. He's somebody who everybody has has huge regard for. 
However, the fact that, that Glenn Simpson was involved in this, who, who has now been exposed as a paid liar and paid a lot of money to lie, not $3,000, but $523,000, mm. suggests that if he had any input into this dossier, then, then one has to question what was in that dossier because his credibility is, is worth zero. But there's no reason to think that he did. And this project, which he, this project separate from the effort to discredit you, was supported first by Republicans, then at the time of the dossier, by people who were in effect proxies for, for the Democratic Party. But there's no reason to think that Glenn Simpson had any impact on the substance of this report. He hired, a, as you say, a respected guy to investigate. It's, it's purely a question of, of chain of custody. So, hmm. so it, it, it all depends. Mm-hmm. So I, I have no, no doubts about um, Chris Steele. I have every doubt about Glenn Simpson. Did he have – are his fingerprints on any of the output of that, of that dossier? We don't know. And we'll never know because Glenn Simpson, with all this stuff, has never publicly spoken. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he is, he's, he's, he's he, testified, right? He's, no, but he's done it all behind closed yep. doors. So he's, he's, he's a guy. I mean it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary that, that this guy who's, who's effectively determining – trying to change – American policy towards Russia in in relation to my case and trying to change <laughs> policy in America with as far as Donald Trump doesn't come out and speak and defend his work. I mean, mm-hmm. why why is this guy so cowardly that he's sitting sitting um, he's writing new threatening letters through his lawyers but never never actually willing to come in and defend his work. Well, let's reiterate our invitation to Glenn Simpson. Glenn Simpson, if you're out there, we'd love to have you on Trumpcast where you can reach, um, I think it's now up to 100 million listeners. Um, <laughs> Bill, just to wrap up, I want to ask you a kind of personal question. A moment ago, you described yourself as an investor, which is certainly how you're often described in the press. I would describe you, based on what I know about what you're doing, as a, as a kind of former investor has become a global human rights campaigner. What's your life? Are you still an investor or are you spending all you're spending all your time trying to pass the Magnitsky Act around the world, yeah. aren't you? No, investor was my was my previous profession. Yeah. It's kind of like you're a college professor, you're still a professor or whatever. So I was an investor. I gave up investing. Um I'm no longer an investor. I'm a full-time human rights activist. Um <clears throat> I, w- I would almost even describe myself slightly differently. I'm not really I'm, a, I'm, I'm what I call a criminal justice entrepreneur. I'm trying to find. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to work work my way around the system to try to find ways of, of which we can get criminal justice against bad guys like Putin and the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky, um, in spite of the fact that the world really doesn't have the the systems to do that at the moment. Um, this has been really, really interesting, and it just is like a huge honor to to meet you. I mean, you know, I know a lot of Americans admire you, especially this really elegant piece of legislation that passed before Trump, before we were all had Russia, Russia, Russia fever. And um, well, there's something coming up which 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 we, we should end the show on, which yeah. is is that the the Magnitsky Act is um, uh, every year in December is when they add names add names of Russian human rights violators to the Magnitsky list. Um, it's been in existence now. This will be the fifth year. In the last four Decembers, uh, President Obama added names to the Magnitsky list. And we're coming up to December. Mm. And so this will be a big test in December of whether the Trump administration um, wants to show everybody that there, there was no collusion and they're ready to sanction people mm. under the Magnitsky Act or whether they don't. And so let's watch this space and see they what happens. They have to produce a list. That's part of the statute, right? They have, there will have to be some names on the list or they can just li- let the ones from last year ride. Well, they, they, can, they could just – I mean they could either produce the list yeah. or they could not produce a list. The law says that they have to report to Congress a list of people um, at the anniversary of the act, which is around two weeks from now. So let's see what happens. We'll be watching closely, if only so Virginia can find her next Halloween costume. <laughs> That's right. Eamon Agaloff, I'm thinking of. Um, thanks so much for being here, Bill. Thank Bill, you. thanks for joining us on the show. 
That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And if you like this show, please follow us on Twitter, at RealTrumpCast. There's lots of great conversation about what you hear on the program. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.